Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. I'm very excited to bring you my conversation with today's guest. Eric Davis is an author and a podcaster and a brilliant thinker who has spent the last 20 plus years working at the intersection of religion, culture, and technology. So his interests are very much in line with the kind of topics that I like to explore on this show. And so Eric very much was and is an ideal guest. And so after I served with him on a panel at a psychedelic conference in Australia, it's the Entheogenesis Conference, which is in the Melbourne area once a year. And we served in a, on a panel on consciousness hacking, which was a lot of fun. This was in December. And so asked him if he'd be willing to come on the show. And he nicely said yes. And so we've got a great conversation today where we touch on... A number of topics, but you know what we really spent a lot of time doing starting out, which after Eric gave us his background, is we spent some time unpacking the new atheist critique of religion, which I really enjoyed doing and I found to be very helpful and hopefully resonates with a lot of people out there as well, who I'm sure have read the work of any one of these thinkers or more, whether it's Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, or Daniel Dennett. For me, I've read all of them, but in particular, the work of Sam Harris is the person who's really had the most influence on me. And while my views on religion are now at a point where they they differ from Sam in some pretty significant ways with respect to religion, I've got a ton of respect for Sam, and I certainly appreciate many of the points that he makes. And Eric and I shared an appreciation for an agreement with some of the important and salient points that the new atheists do make about religion. And and yet I think Eric and I also largely shared our disagreements with the new atheist perspective as well. There's a real emphasis on belief or really an equation that religion is belief as opposed to it's yeah, it's about belief, but it's about a lot more than this. And that new atheist narrow view of religion as belief is too narrow of a view, in Eric's words. And that was a take that is a take that I certainly agree with. My view on religion has been influenced a lot by people that I've read over the last couple of years starting with the famed mythologist Joseph Campbell, who really incorporated the works of Carl Jung to talk about the universal value that so many of these myths, these religious stories have. And and that for me is really, you know, that journey has been going in depth and through a lot of Hindu mythology in particular with a couple of my yoga teachers, Richard Freeman and Dr. Douglas Brooks. And more recently, I've really enjoyed exploring the biblical series that Jordan Peterson has been doing. And Dr. Peterson has really had a profound impact. And he's starting to influence my thinking as well on on mythology, 
in some pretty significant ways. And so I think for anyone out there who has read some of the work of Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson and, and finds those ideas intriguing, even if they don't agree with them, will enjoy the conversation that Eric and I had, because we definitely sort of kind of compared their views and talked about, you know, how we how we see religion in, in light of those views and where we might agree or disagree with Peterson and Harris and with each other. And we talked about the value of myth generally. So a lot of this is in the normal conversation that is available to everyone. And then in the Patreon portion of the conversation available to supporters, we talked about the notion of that ideas have people and people don't simply have ideas, which I think we touched on in in our regular conversation as well, but we kind of explored the implications of that for popular culture today and how that's really affected American popular culture in particular. People really seem to be in the grips of ideology. And that's true for people of all ideological stripes across the political spectrum. It's not picking on any particular group in particular, but people very much, it seems to be an age of ideological certainty. It seems to be an age of certitude. People are very certain of their beliefs. And you can say, that's nothing new. But You know, I think part of this is the interconnectedness of the Internet, and maybe it's just we're more aware of it, but there's been much written on it. So I don't I don't need to rehash it here, but you can Google the whole notion of choice architecture if you're interested in learning more about that. And actually, Sam Harris did a really good podcast on it within the last couple months with I forget the guest background, but he had a lot of insight into the area and much has been written on how social media balkanized us and tell these different groups we can choose to sort of agree or listen to only people that we agree with and ignore those we disagree with. And that's a major problem. And it's something that Eric and I touch on, as well as the potential pitfalls of identity politics and the threats to free speech that we find disconcerting. So I think there's a lot out there for people who are interested in myth and technology and a lot of the normal topics that any of the listeners to this podcast, as well as people who enjoy Eric's work, will enjoy listening to. I want to say a brief note on a couple of topics, both politics and Patreon. Let me just start with Patreon. So I have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash hacking the self. And the simple intention there is because I'm trying to find a way to make this sustainable. Right now, I am spending a lot of my time and decent amount of my money as well, doing something which is totally a passion project, which I absolutely love. So that's fine. I'm not in this to make it rich, but I just want to find a way to make it sustainable so that I can continue to have interesting conversations so that I can continue to deliver content also that's relevant and worthwhile to the audience, which is why I very much want to hear from you and involve this in this conversation. And I encourage you to contact me whether it's on Twitter at Hacking the Self or the Hacking the Self Facebook page or hackingtheself at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I want this to be a conversation. I want this content to be responsive to your interests as well. But I also need to find a way to make this sustainable. And so one way that I'm inviting people and incentivizing people to contribute on Patreon is that I'm going to deliver bonus content. 
you know, extra portions of the conversations that I have with guests or sometimes entirely different talks with guests or perhaps just, you know, different content that I'm producing myself that all of which are exclusively available to Patreon supporters. And so part of that conversation, my conversation with Eric will be available just to Patreon supporters. And Eric was happy to sort of oblige and help me to launch this part of my project where I'm trying to build up the bonus content. And so I thank you, Eric, for, for sort of being my first guest to help me launch that. The other note that I want to say about politics is I know politics is a tricky topic and, and let me explain my feelings on it. I, I touched on it a little bit in my Thinking Out Loud podcast, which I intend to do more of, but I'll elaborate a little bit here for, for people who are new to the show or, or just tuning in. My general feelings about politics are that I try to appreciate both perspectives and of course, there are multiple perspectives, but I certainly understand the point of view that people are sick of hearing about politics and they want nothing to do with it. And so I can definitely respect that. This is not a show where, for example, we're talking about really so much what's going on in the news a lot. I'm not interested in the day-to-day -day news cycle, though I do want it to be relevant. So I will touch on that from time to time. But it's not about the news cycle, and it's definitely not about the political news cycle, about what's going on in Congress, you know, the Trump administration or any other administration, you know. So you can get there are plenty of other great shows where you can get your political fix elsewhere if you're into that. And I appreciate that many people are not. Okay. On the other hand, you know, some of the topics that we touch on in this show inevitably intersect with politics. I mean, let's be honest, religion is inherently political, right? There's really no way of getting around that. When we're talking about things like, you know, meditation, contemplative practices, a lot of more esoteric aspects of religion, we can easily steer far clear of religious topics. But anytime we're talking about groups of human beings getting together, and certainly when we're talking about those human beings formulating a worldview and articulating a set of practices and, and norms around how people should behave and customs and rituals. All of that is inherently political. And so, and to point out the other thing, which is to even talk critically about religion. And by critically, I mean openly, thoughtfully, in a way that that is not dogmatic in a way that is attempts to be objective in a way that critically evaluates arguments that's inherently political and it violates a serious social taboo which is very much still in place you know perhaps not for a lot of listeners in this show but it's still very true in Western societies, and I'll certainly speak from an American perspective, and I touched on this before in the Thinking Out Loud podcast, but, you know, it is certainly in, we see how it breaks down along ideological lines, for example, for people on the right, you know, it's generally, and I'm going to generalize here, for people on the right, you know, it, if you were to criticize Christianity, you know, that's something that would be met with pretty fierce opposition, yet 
when you're in much more liberal circles, you'll hear people criticize, you know, Christianity, evangelical Christians, and, you know, there's no real particular taboo around that. You know, frankly, people make jokes. People see plays like the Book of Mormon and think it's funny. It's certainly okay to criticize things like Scientology or the Westboro Baptist Church, right? Even just religious zealots generally. And all of those, understandably so, you know, in my view. Yet at the same time, you know, in liberal circles, a lot of those same people who do that with comfort, the moment you begin to talk critically about Islam, you can start to get yourself into trouble. And there's a double standard there on both sides. And I'm of the viewpoint that you've just got to recognize that there is a taboo in discussing these things. And we're either free to talk about these ideas openly and critically, and we're not. I mean, I know the answer to that, which is we're free. You know, I mean, it's taboo for some people to do that, but I think it's time to just to get over that, to move beyond that. And to here's the critical distinction. We need to be able to separate ideas from people, right? This is what I see people doing all the time. And it's part of what we need to learn to do in terms of having a civil conversation with people. We need to learn to be able to criticize ideas without making a personal attack on the people who happen to hold those ideas. Now, let me give a couple examples of this that would that cut across different groups or ideological boundaries so as to be a little fair to different sides. But uh, well, I just did in my Christian Islam example with the right and the left. But another one, you know, I really noticed this when I was growing up. I shouldn't say growing up. I was already in college at the time, but when the Iraq war happened. And one thing that, you know, the Bush administration really wanted to make a point of was saying, this was Bush's line is, if you criticize the war, you're criticizing the troops. And he had a number of different ways of saying that quite explicitly, as did Cheney. And, you know, that's a really brilliant tactic if you want to silence dissent. You know, it's also a very totalitarian one. You know, think about if we map that onto other worldviews, it's saying, well, let's see, you can't criticize military policy because then that's criticizing the people who execute military policy, even though that doesn't make sense because the, the troops execute it. They don't formulate the policy, which is why we criticize Congress and the president, and it's totally fair to do so. But that would be like saying, well, you can't criticize healthcare policy because then you're criticizing doctors and nurses. And you can't criticize education policy because then you're criticizing teachers. It's childish, right? It's, it's very childish. We have to be able to talk openly and honestly about people's views and people have to be held responsible for their views, you know, and I, I appreciate the fact that religion is wrapped up in identity for people, you know, so to criticize, if you criticize Christianity, how can they not take that personally, right? If their core beliefs are Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever they happen to be, that's fair. I would also ask that person who's offended to consider the implications of how that plays out in similar situations if other groups fail to do that, right? I see this as an American where people take it very personally, you know, if people criticize American foreign policy, you know, and they take it as a personal affront. And I've seen people get that way 
regardless of what country they're from, right? People from any country do that, right? It's part of tribalism. It's how we're programmed, you know? Well, how dare you criticize, you know, American foreign policy, you know? And a lot of times people who won't even agree with the policy or some of those ideas, there's an instinctive defensiveness because we're part of that tribe, right? So anyways, I will end my tangent on this by saying that there's a taboo, right? I get that there's a taboo, but we have to be able to talk about difficult topics. We have to be able to talk about topics that are absolutely central to the human experience. We talk about religion, not just because it's difficult. I'm very much not of the new atheist mindset, which I used to be more of that religion is some kind of delusion and it overwhelmingly causes problems and we just need to evolve past it. I respect people who still fall in that camp. Absolutely. And atheism is a very respectable position. I have many, many qualms with organized religion. And I think we need to be able to speak openly and honestly and critically about those problems. So I totally am with people who are atheists or critical of religion on that front. But I also happen to think there is great value in religion. I personally derive much value from it. A lot of that happens to be practice-based rather than beliefs, you know, contemplative practices, meditation, yoga, all of which undeniably came to us through religious traditions. I also think there's so much value in mythology that has come down to us from the great religious traditions. And by myth, I don't mean that in a pejorative way as falsehood. I mean, I think the word myth has been totally misconstrued. I mean, myth as a good thing. I mean, myth as a story that is, is true, but not literally. It is rich in deeper archetypal meaning, you know, that conveys, I think, universal stories and truths about the human condition. And I want to be able to talk honestly and openly about that on this show. So it's, it's not only the negatives. I think there's, you know, so much positive about religion. And that's part of the work on this show is sort of hoping that I can convey that point of view to maybe some of the folks who are still in the camp where, you know, they're educated, they're secular, they're in the scientific materialist worldview. I get it. I totally get that. And I empathize with your view and I share a lot of it. But I think if you can see a lot of the value in some of these practices, it might not only do a lot of good for your own life. Hey, at the end of the day, I'm not trying to sell anything, but whatever it might help you to do is to empathize more with other people who have a different perspective and to realize that there is a more sophisticated, nuanced way of interacting with religion rather than the simple literalist sort of view of religion, which is kind of stuck in an adolescent sort of thinking, if we're thinking about it in psychological terms. So anyways, that is my longer soliloquy on why I'm going to inevitably touch on politics in the show, but I'm going to be conscious about not doing it too much. And I truly am, am wanting to strike that balance. So I'm very much open to people's 
perspective as well in terms of what listeners are looking for, you know, in terms of the content generally. So would love to hear from you on that front. And with that said, let me give you a bio for today's guest, Eric Davis. So Eric is an author, a podcaster, an award-winning journalist, and a popular speaker based in San Francisco. His work explores the intersection of religion, culture, and technology, which again is why I'm so keen to have him on this show. Eric has written a number of fascinating books in this area, including Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information, The Visionary State, A Journey Through California's Spiritual Landscape, and more recently, Nomad Codes, Adventures in Modern Esoterica. Eric has a BA from Yale University and a PhD in Religious Studies from Rice University. He is currently the host of the Expanding Mind podcast. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric Davis. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. You know, Eric, welcome to Hacking the Self, and thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I had a great time meeting you and uh, participating in the panel there at Antheogenesis in Australia, and so I'm uh, happy to be here. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So I'd love to get started. You know, I, I told folks a bit about your background in the intro, but just for you to kind of describe to people, you know, beyond the quick blurb, give people a little bit about your background and what do you do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've been blessed with an, an interesting, rather independent uh, career. I think it's important to, to emphasize that when I, I grew up in Southern California, kind of at the sort of dwindling edge of the counterculture, you know, when all the sort of detritus was left over. And I was always very interested in uh, alternative uh, spiritual practice. I was interested in meditation and we'd go down, you know, we'd smoke a bowl and then go into the meditation sessions that were still the kind of 70s meditation scene, Muktananda and Hare Krishnas and Zen places. We didn't, we weren't always stoned, but often stoned. And I had a teacher in public high school who had been an teacher, the now known as sort of Landmark Forum and that kind of stuff. And he brought some of this into his class on epistemics that was, you know, very much a, a very California public school class. Believe me, that it didn't last forever, but it was pretty strange while it did. You know, and I got into the Grateful Dead and, and did a lot of psychedelics and we got, you know, really good weed. And, you know, there was the sort of drug culture side of it, but it was always part of a kind of exploration of, of ideas. And, you know, we read read books about the Be Here Now and Ram Dass and Timothy Leary and Alan Watts. And those were all kind of heroes for us, you know, a little bit kind of retro kids, you know, in a new wave era. And so that was a very important basis for me because I had a lot of really, really weird experiences, not like out of the park, you know, transcendental things or completely bizarre paranormal events, but a lot of things that were really strange. So I was kind of already, I knew that the world was a weird place. 
And uh, then I went to fancy Ivy League school, decided I didn't want to be a grad student and became a journalist instead. And I was just in the right place at the right time in New York City to be able to write about a lot of kind of interesting alternative marginal fringe topics in the late 80s and the early 90s when there was kind of a really interesting space to talk about these things. So I was talking about subcultures like Rainbow Gathering, and I wrote a very early article about Burning Man back in the 90s. And, you know, I wrote about drugs. I wrote about virtual reality. I got online really early in, you know, 93 uh, I think I got my first, you know, email account and, you know, the pre-World Wide Web internet and learned a lot, you know, really dove in deep and a very interesting culture. So I was really influenced by a lot of different alternative cultures, anarchism, uh, spiritual uh, development, drug culture, magic and the occult I was always very interested in. So I kind of wrote about these things as I explored them personally and in the late 90s sort of drew together all my weird interests in the crossovers of magic and technology into this book, Technosis, which all my friends said was a terrible idea. It wasn't going to do very well. And it didn't make a lot of money at the time, but it became a kind of classic. It sort of launched a lot of boats. It, it turned a lot of people on artists, musicians, scholars, media artists, you know, lots of different folks who are, you know, a lot of people are doing similar things at the same time, but it really helped kind of map a territory of the kind of weird religious and mystical side of this strange experience of being human, which it means being technological in, in some way or another, at least in our era. So I kind of kept that that sort of freelance career going for for quite a long time, wrote some other books, uh, wrote a book about alternate religion in California, really kind of trying to find out about the the place that shaped me. And really, in, in a lot of my topics really are about California, like oh, so much of the new age was here, so much of the uh, computer culture and computer counterculture, Burning Man, uh, you know, psychedelics were more advanced here in the 1950s outside of the MK Ultra kind of network than anywhere else in the in the United States. So it's oh, it's been a very psychedelic place for a long time. And the encounter with Eastern mysticism and, and meditation, you know, goes on and on. So in a lot of ways, I've just been kind of plumbing into California, both as a personal identity, but also as a kind of space, a kind of place of encounter of cheesy sci-fi shows and brilliant, uh, sublime experiences and radical cultural change, and in some ways, radical disappointment about the possibilities of cultural change and, and how things can go awry in real history. And then uh, more recently, I decided finally to go back and get a PhD. It was a great move, highly recommended. If you have any qualms about getting a PhD after, right after getting out of college, listen to those qualms, avoid it, and then maybe later down the line, you can go back and really appreciate it, appreciate the time and, you know, whatever. And so I, I was able to get a degree recently, which was interesting to kind of see how my ideas and my interests would fare inside of that, that world after working on them for so long. So that's pretty much where I am. And I've been doing a podcast myself for uh, eight years now. And I started it just when I went to college and it's been turned into kind of one of the more uh, interesting and rewarding things I've done personally as well as I think, you know, filling in uh, in some ways a not dissimilar space that you're covering. And I'm really interested in that point where we, you know, reason and criticism or thinking and critique come into 
relationship or dialogue with religious experience, with spiritual exploration, with the kind of culture of spirituality, both modern and ancient. And so it's a it's a very fun place to be, and I have a lot of lively conversations. So it's an interesting time for these topics. It absolutely is. And I'm sure that we've got a lot of common ground. I look forward to getting into that. One thing that I'd be curious to hear is, you know, sort of your own personal views, how you describe yourself in terms of, would you say you're an atheist, you're agnostic? Do you believe, would you describe yourself as a theist? And if so, is it a dualist or non-dualist perspective? Wow, that's, you You really cut right to it. I, I, I would preface this by saying that part of, this might sound like a dodge, but part of what I'm interested in is is always staying open and pretty light on my feet when it comes to ontological commitments. And what I mean by that is that in my experience, is that I've had a a lot of experiences and I could use them to support and a lot of ideas and a lot of encounters with people, with places, with with rituals uh, and with states of mind. And I could probably cluster them together to uh, found a variety of different perspectives. One of them would most certainly be a a reductionist materialist. Then there's certainly uh, you know a, myst- a, a mystical side, non-dual, sure sometimes, but also encounters with uh, s- let's say spirits. I don't know about about gods exactly, but certainly incorporeal intelligences, non-human intelligences. I could cluster that together. I could even cluster together some of my strange dreams and most paranoid experiences and come up with some kind of alien control conspiracy theory structure. So I'm I'm aware of the way in which you can cluster your thoughts, experiences, and indeed your your kind of axioms, the axioms that you carry about what is reality, who am I, what does it mean to think, what does it mean to make decisions, what does it mean to decide questions like am I a dualist, a non-dualist, et cetera, et cetera. And I try to play lightly with those things. So all of this is an elaborate way of, of either dodging, which is fine. If someone's saying, hey, you're just dodging, I'll be like, yeah, you're right. I'm just kind of dodging. I'm kind of a trickster or not a trickster, but like, again, I try to say sort of light on my feet, ontologically open. I'm a, you could say I'm a bit of an ontological anarchist in that the kind of commitments we make then themselves begin to sort of settle in and help shape the way reality engages us. And I, I do very much believe that. That said, I'm not comfortable. I would never, I never called myself an atheist and, and have always been uncomfortable with that phrase, partly because uh, I have a lot of problems with a lot of the positions that people take who call themselves atheists, um, at least in the more public domain. And I do believe, let's say, in the mystery that we're engaged, we're embedded in something that is has an extreme dimension of mystery and the and the unknown to it, and that that at the very least should counsel us to remain light about again about our ontological commitments and our beliefs. That sort of position of openness, of possibility, even of contradiction. That I can be a naturalist in some sense, insisting on that all that's really going on are 
you know, physical particles and whatever consciousness is. And I, I remain very open-minded about what consciousness is. I'm not very satisfied with purely reductionist accounts of consciousness as being emergent, emergent phenomena of, of material particles. I'm, I have questions about that. Maybe we can talk about it. But in any case, even from that perspective, it's not clear to me the ways in which that we can't still say there are things like gods and that gods can relate with human beings and that human, you know, and that there are these dimensions that have a kind of slippery quality, that ontology is multiple. There's not one way for things to be like the way that this rock is and that that's the same way as this car, is the same way as a thought in my head, is the same way as Sherlock Holmes, is the same way as the end of time. These are all different kinds of things. And the where I'm coming from, they have different sort of claims on being, on what it is to say that something is. So... For atheists, it's often important to say these things are not real. They are illusions. They are fictions. They are fabulations. And I'm like, I'm not so sure what a fiction is. I'm not so sure what a fabulation is in terms of its sort of purchase on reality. So I have kind of a weird view that in a lot of ways, I haven't really like articulated, like I haven't laid it down. It's kind of, here's my philosophical view or how I think about things, although I did do it to a good extent in the... in the book that's coming out that's based on my dissertation. So it makes answering questions like that a little bit uh, tough because I, I can kind of, you know, I sort of, yeah, I've worn that hat. I play, <laughs> I put that hot, that, that one on. And if you boil it down, it's, it's really a kind of commitment to inquiry and to inquiry in an environment where the mystery is, is acknowledged that there are limits to rationality, to reason, to language and that we have to develop relationships with those forces, spaces, questions, voids, abysses that go beyond the comforting sort of containment of our language and, and our reason. I'm not sure if that's religious or not. I'm not, I don't think it's theological exactly. It's very practical to me. But it definitely does not fit in a typical kind of, you know, physicalist, materialist, uh, naturalist kind of perspective, which in most ways I really do identify with. I don't take your your response as a dodge at all. I think I think what it speaks to, at least how I interpret it, I think you probably have a you don't see yourself as just a scholar. You see yourself as some sort of scholar practitioner, or at least if you don't use that term, a strong sense of pragmatism. I certainly see the influence of, there's a a Zen or Buddhist quality to your answer in that not being attached to one's beliefs, even particular stories that one favors about the way the world works, even if that's a, a Buddhist viewpoint or whatever it is. That that's a very sort of Buddhist answer. And so I took it that way and I am very sympathetic. It's a it's a viewpoint to which I'm very, especially as of late in the last year, I'm not only sympathetic, I think I'm pretty much in the same position. And it's also a rare one, I would say, from what I noticed for a lot of academics. And perhaps this is because you got your PhD later. But one thing I noticed about academics, I'd be curious to get your take on this, is it doesn't matter whether... And I guess it tends to be less of a really religious viewpoint, but there's a real confidence in the mind's ability to know things. There's that sense of certainty. 
And in this sense, they have something in common with a lot of very religious people, even though it might not be faith, it might be, well, you could say it's a different kind of faith in the mind's ability to know. But I think, and I'd love to get into the new atheists here, get your critique on them, but you know, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris are are perfect examples of this. You know, Dawkins says that agnosticism isn't even a tenable position, right? Because he's so confident in the mind's ability to know. So I'd love to kind of get your specific thoughts on that in terms of why, in some sense, he doesn't think agnosticism isn't even a tenable position and just sort of then generally your your larger perspective on kind of the new atheist take on religion. Yeah, it's a complicated one. And I feel uh, there's, there's some, you know, I, I can't go that far because I, to be frank, I have, I've only read them to a certain degree. And, and so I'm, I'm only interested in engaging them to the degree I feel like I really have a handle on. I mean, I've read a couple of Dawkins books and I've wrestled enough with Daniel Dennett to, you know, really appreciate him as, as a philosopher. I think he's very important for people to engage. He's he's the one I really take most seriously as a, a materialist philosopher you have to wrestle with. I find him maddening in, in some ways, but I have a, a good deal of respect for him. Dawkins' public persona and his sort of his development of his brand and the way that he's deployed his brand in order to achieve certain effects, I find both uh, a little repulsive and kind of funny. And the funniness is the unintended irony of it. And here's where being a historian of religion uh, gives you a, a kind of an in, because that's sort of my discipline. And What's funny about a lot of, you know, and I, I would put some of it on, on Dawkins's own style, but it's certainly something that you can find in the larger kind of atheist skeptic community, you know, online, on Twitter, and the way that they use discourse and the way they talk and the way they talk about other people. That from the outside, again, as someone who knows the history of religion in the West and the history of Christianity... It's quite obvious <laughs> that the resemblance between the New Atheist as a movement, not necessarily the specific arguments of its leading players, but as a movement, is very, very similar to forms of militant Protestantism. That the militancy, the certainty, and the, cre and the critique of others vis-a-vis -vis their beliefs as opposed to their practices or their morals or whatever it is, but this emphasis on beliefs and wrong belief and the militant desire to expunge wrong belief and the incredibly naive idea that if, if we somehow manage to expunge these wrong beliefs, then we're going to be in a happier world, a better world, which is that's where the faith is. That's where the kind of absurd faith is, the scientific idea that if we all be kind of just believe science, whatever that means, because that's very complicated, that's another matter, that everything's going to be all, you know, working out fine. And so that, it's a very peculiar position. And it looks so much like forms of Protestant militancy, because it comes out of Protestant militancy. The irony of modern secular thinking as a kind of mode of intellection, of, of making decisions, of understanding reason, of understanding the world, is that it emerges from Protestantism. It's not like 
there's religion and then suddenly everyone goes, this is bullshit. We're going to like do something totally different. There is a religious character to what animates a good number of new atheists in terms of what motivates them, their morals, their relationship to people who don't believe things they do, their sense of superiority, their sense of arrogance, and their belief, again, that if you that the goal is to expunge wrong belief because people are being taken advantage of or they're too stupid to know anything better. And that side of it, again, I see it's ultimately kind of funny because it's so ironic. Again, like, you know, you talk to other historians of religion, They'll go, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what, he's, what he means. It's, it's like obvious. It's like tic-tac-toe or something. So that side of it, I, you know, I, I find kind of, kind of irritating and is why I stay away from the term atheist. I'm, I'm much more sad about the loss or the confusion of the term skeptic. Uh, that's a real weeper for me because philosophically, classical skepticism, like with Pyrrho in, in, the, ancient, in the ancient world, and the kinds of questions that are raised there that are sort of the flip side, the questions about how we can know anything. What does it mean to have a belief? What does it mean to practice life, to practice dealing with people, to practice dealing with ideas, to move through the world with as few beliefs as possible? What does that mean? Can we? Is this coherent? What are the ethics that come out of it? What's the spirituality that come out of it? That is like classic skepticism. And, you know, some of the skeptical questions that are asked, uh, you know, at the dawn of modern philosophy around the time of Descartes are extraordinary. I mean, those guys are like, they'll, they far outpace our contemporary conspiracy theorists in terms of questioning the fundamental phenomena of reality. And it's deeply a part of thinking. I mean, it's part of all traditions. You know, it's in, it's in India, you know, you go back and there's all these different philosophical schools based on the Upanishads, and some of them believe in one principle, and some of them are dualists, and some of them believe in Shiva, and some of them are radical skeptics. They're like full on, like, what? I don't know what anything's here. How do I know? I just have a phenomena. So skepticism is an extremely noble and to my mind, spiritually very powerful and even challenge, spiritually challenging way of being in the world that I very much identify with in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. But that kind of skepticism is very different than what the term has come to mean, which is basically a debunker of the paranormal or a debunker of gurus or something that kind of snide, snarky, rationalist, insider superiority that can then make fun of people who are lying or who are, who are you know, fooling other people through the paranormal, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, it's, it's, it's sad, it's disappointing because it's a great term. I mean, I, I got it on like a Twitter conversation once where I, I quoted Robert Anton Wilson, who was my introduction to this kind of thinking. He has a very robust contemporary version of this kind of skepticism. And I quoted something and I made a few comments about skepticism and, and it you know, flagged through somebody's skeptic filter. And then I started getting in this conversation with this young, impassioned skeptic. And it took a little while before they, they realized that I was really not on their side. And it was a very funny conversation because it was, I got a nice little flavor of that kind of in-group sort of militant, that kind of funny, snarky militancy that, that animates the capital S skeptic. So that's some of my, you know, and we can keep going more about the problems with 
certainty. But I, before we leave the new atheists, I, I want to switch gears and and give a, a you know a major tip of the hat to Sam Harris, who's I think done really amazing work on articulating aspects of of, of the Dharma, of meditation practice, of relating to spiritual teachers, and not even uh, just. You know, he doesn't just sort of simply like remove all of the supernatural claims and just go for the kind of neuroscience that's embedded within it, like a lot of less sophisticated people do these days when they just want to go for the kind of psycho scientific benefits and get rid of all the religious stuff. He has, you know, he, he went to India a lot. He worked with a lot of masters. He, you know, very much understands the, the things that are at play between sudden and gradual paths of meditation. He has a great way of describing Dzogchen. And I mean, he's, you know, he's the real deal. He's on, he's on the path. And when he talks about a meditation and, 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 and Buddhism, and you are correct to have pegged me both as a general Buddhist and more specifically as, as a Zeni, albeit a somewhat heretical, uh, you know, West Coast. I'm on the beat Zen side rather than the square Zen side, to use a old Alan Watts distinction. But when he talks about meditation and, and Buddhism, I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty much the way I see. It. Like, yep, yeah, that's pretty great. And where I where I differ from him is when he starts talking about religion and belief and how it functions in society and culture. I just have a very different perspective, partly out of a temperamental one. I I'm just fascinated. I've always been fascinated by religion, and I love its the aesthetics and the the craziness of the ideas. And I've met. Many, many, many incredibly sweet, beautiful people who are deeply religious, uh, some with views that I even find, you know, not only hard to believe, but but even a little reprehensible. But I've had, you know, powerful experiences with them. And the fact is, is that religion is part of our world, is part of the human structure, is part of the history of this planet. And it has immense inertial powers. And you ain't going to make it go away by snapping your rationalist fingers or just talking to other people, you know, in your your circuits of the academia, because academia is, and this is true, it's actually more true in the humanities and the social sciences than it is in the sciences, believe it or not. But there's studies that support this. There are more practicing scientists, bench scientists, even theoreticians who will acknowledge some kind of religious dimension of their life. They go to church, they believe in God, whatever it is. But once you get over to the humanities and the social sciences, zero, <laughs> nobody, you got, you don't get a, you know, I mean, it's not totally true. They're there, but, and it makes sense because in order for modern society to justify, modern secular society to justify itself, you need to have a kind of sort of an ideological center where you banish these ideas. And if course, you let in lots of other crazy ideas, but we don't have to go into that. But that was just never comfortable for me. And so I was never comfortable with that side of, uh, of academia either. And I'm, it's no accident. I'm not currently working as a professor in a university. I'm continuing my freelance life that I built before, giving talks, doing podcasts, writing books. Some of them are for scholars. Some of them are for magicians. You know, it's it's got to be the mix for me and, and I can pull it off. So it, it works out for me, partly because I'm wary of the kind of chumminess of, you know, when a bunch of secular people get together and all sort of, you know, all oh, these religious people, how can we finally understand them? And I'm like, look, the world is bigger than that. It's weirder than that. It's more mysterious and beautiful and more terrifying. And some of that involves religion. And I, I'm fully aware of the dark side of it and 
But I, it's almost just a different temperamental thing. Like when I, I had an interesting experience, and maybe this is this says something wrong about me. I, I would, I'm open to a, an ethical critique. But in the, my apartment building, there's a Hasidic family. He's a rabbi. They're, you know, they're in Chabad, they're Lubavitchers, and so they were, you know, followers of Rabbi Schneerson, who lived in uh, in Brooklyn, and I actually lived not very far away from them, so I was already familiar with that scene. And, you know, I'm fascinated with it, like, oh my God, I got a rabbi on the building, it's totally awesome. They, you know, they dance every Friday night, you know, the kids have payas, or the boys, you know, it's fine. You know, so I'm just kind of happy to see them and I, you know, like enjoy their thing and intera- interact with them the way I do. And then I told the story to a friend of mine whose father had also been a rabbi who was secular, secular Jew, you know, rejected the religion, but grew up with it being kind of oppressive around him. And when I told him the story, he said, oh, my God, those poor kids, I feel so sorry for them. And, you know, to be honest, I was like, God, I didn't really think about that. I just, I, they seem like happy kids. So I'm just dealing with them as happy kids. And that, that position, I, I respect his response, which is partly what that would be the Dawkins response is like that there's a, a form of cruelty in raising children, even a, arguable a kind of a child abuse to raise children inside of such a restricted belief system. For example, Hasid, most Hasidic people, including these guys, don't believe in evolution. I mean, you know, you're like, oh my God, how do you, how do you pull that off? That's amazing. You know, but I think of that and I go, oh my God, how does that work? Whereas some people get really offended, even angry about that. And it just, it's just not my style. I've just always been open to different worldviews. You know, when I meet somebody who's like, I've met like conservative Christians, but it's a weird, like a, at a conference or something. And I find out that they're, they're conservative Christians. And I, I'm like, yeah, let's go at, let's talk. You know, like, I want to meet this guy. Like, I don't want to like fight. I want to like find out how they work. And that's just kind of the way I relate to the world. So it's a very open, multidimensional, ambiguous world that doesn't really work with the kind of faith and rationalism that, that a lot of the, the new atheists well, all of them really uh, have at the core of their work. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Sam Harris because um, he's really the one that I've read the most of. I, I've read all of them, some of all of them, including Hitchens. Sam Harris was always the one that resonated the most for me. And he's the one whose really work I've taken a deep dive into. And I also have a ton of respect for him. And continue to consider myself a big Sam Harris fan. I'm a regular listener of his podcast and supporter, even though my views on I got into him because of religion. But now those are sort of, I would say, probably one of the areas where I don't agree with him quite as much. And part of your critique of Sam and the new atheist perspective actually really overlaps a lot with Jordan Peterson. I'm not sure how much you've heard of his talks or if you're familiar with his work. Yeah, I've gone down the limited way, the, the rabbit hole. I'd never read his book, but I, I've seen a lot of lectures and and I followed him with interest. So. Right. I'd love to talk about a couple ideas that he brings up. But before I do that, I, I want to talk about Sam Harris for a sec, because part of this worldview, part of the points he makes, I think is indicative of the larger worldview of atheism. And I think it kind of maps in a way along to people on the other side of the religious spectrum, which is, I think it's fair to say that Sam doesn't see a lot of value in religion as myth, you know, and we can concede his point that there's plenty of the Bible, especially of, you know, something like 
Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you know, when they're talking about punishments, stoning someone to death for adultery, that's not a myth, right? But there is a lot of the Bible that's filled with stories. And, you know, we can talk about whether that's meant to be taken literally or figuratively. I know his response would be about it's the doctrine of revelation that really changes things and they're not meant to be taken literally. But I think it's really fair to say that he doesn't see much value in religion as myth and that this is really a big viewpoint between atheists and people on the other side of the spectrum. And so I guess, what is your take on his argument that no, these aren't meant to be taken as myths, that the doctrine of revelation is really what changes things. And so, you know, if you kind of see these things as myths, which Peterson does, you're kind of, you're really just fooling yourself because that's not how these were meant to be taken. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things to say about it. I'm trying to make, think of what's a a more interesting way of of framing it. One is that, is that there obviously, there's something very deep in religion and in mythology. If you think about earlier, you know, the earliest sort of uh, mythologies of the state, like with, you know, in Mesopotamia and that myths and religious stories are forms of social control without question. But once you get to a point like the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world where Christianity is born, where modern Judaism really emerges, you know, post-exile Judaism and, you know, eventually, you know, merges, you get Manichaeanism and then you get... Islam and then all the esoteric, you know, twists and turns within these various traditions is that things are so complicated already. You already have such a complicated civilization is so complicated that you can't really claim that there is a single intention or that the fact that, you know, a lot of people even believe these things as absolute truth, you know, believe them the way that, you know, modern people believe that the sun is the center of the solar system or something like that, even though it's not exactly clear how you map, you know, pre-modern beliefs onto modern scientific beliefs, but that's another question. But even if you have a lot of people who are both fomenting these ideas and consuming them as facts that also help support the social structure, although sometimes it challenges other social structures, at the same time, you always have, and I would insist you always have, both intellectuals who are aware of the fragility of these claims, of the ambiguity of language, of the openness of interpretation, and indeed they're talking about this all the time. There was always a question, how do we interpret Greek myths? Are they about people? Are they about gods? Are they about movements in the heavens? You know, there were reductionists then who said, no, no, all those stories, they're just about constellations and, and, you know, astronomical events. So you always, you have that side, and then you have what to me is, is more close to the heart for for me is what you would call the kind of esoteric side, that people who recognize that within these public stories, whether or not that we can think of them as myths or as claims, revealed claims about reality, that within these public stories, there is a kind of productive ambiguity that invites a process of inner transformation, of interiority, of self-discovery, of encountering the mystery, of altered states of consciousness, of other dimensions of being, dimensions and states of consciousness from which, if you are able to hold them as perspectives, 
radically challenge the very distinction between revealed truth and ambiguous mythology and, and reason. I mean, it's like there's a gap in there that opens up where things mean too many things to be reduced to, to just the way they function as so, social control. So then you're in this kind of bind where you can go, like I can look at Christianity and go, oh my God, the Christianity has caused so much grief. They've supported so much monstrosity. I'd stay away. From, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to touch it with a hundred foot pole, you know, impossible. It's just irreparably stained with blood and evil. And yet, even from the get-go, there's already this turn. Is there, a, is there a secret there? Is there an esoteric side? Is there a mystical side? Is there a side in which all of these stories are also images or symbols that are useful or valuable within a process of internal transformation or indeed of some kind of ecstatic transformation? So, you know, if you go back to the origins of Christianity, you have the people who want to create an orthodox church that is modeling itself on Rome, on the structure of Rome and the way in which Rome is a hierarchical society that's very conservative and wants things to be, wants to be in control. So there's a part of Christianity that's doing that, the guys that won, unfortunately. But at the same time, the Gnostics are not just some crazy guys off in the desert. They're there. And what the Gnostics are saying is like, well, yeah, you think it's about all those rules and regulations and the Ten Commandments and all that, but actually... This word is a word of radical freedom, and it takes you out of this framework, you know, and that was their particular thing was this kind of God beyond God. We don't have to go into Gnosticism, but it was a very radical message that both critiqued the existing forms of political authority to some degree, although they weren't radicals or revolutionaries, but more importantly, uh, very much criticized the dominant interpretation of these myths, so much so that, for, you know, for the Gnostics, the guy who's ruling the Garden of Eden, you know, the God who, who banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, that that God is not Jesus' dad. He's a fallen, he's a lower God. He's even a demon in some accounts. There's a true God beyond that God. So, and they explain their beliefs, not just by, through their own personal revelation, because they would say, oh, I have a, I had an ecstatic experience. I went to this, to the eighth heaven and I talked to God, but they also did it by using the literature. They would read the books. They would read the same texts that the other guys were reading, and they would say, no, no, that's not what it means. It means this. So they would use the ambiguity in the language, the ambiguity in the stories to build these very different worlds. And those worlds are always going on. They're always part of the picture. They, they rise, they fall. And so when you look at religion with a capital R, you know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, there are always these sort of, you know, f unfolding fans of distinctions and resonances and associations. And some of those are not at all these kinds of claims that you're talking about. And therefore, they can go along very well with secular forms of thinking. And that's a, another place where I really disagree with the, the new atheist stance. I, I'm not sure how they, if they all agree on this particular perspective, but I sense they mostly do, which is that being accommodating is even worse. <laughs> you know, like liberal, if you like support liberal religious people, you're even more of a fool than thinking that religion, you know, should just be conservative. I mean, it's like, that's the worst thing to do because there's, you're, you're ineluctably stained with its intellectual 
intellectual dishonesty. And I just don't think that culture works that way. I don't think that language works that way. And in that sense, I very much agree with, with Jordan Peterson on the value of these even from a strictly naturalist evolutionary perspective, there's no supernatural dimension. There's no gods who exist on high for eternity where there's no judgment, you know, after death, all that stuff. That even within that framework, there's profound value in these stories and the way in which they create agency, they create motivation, they create stories that help us organize our internal psychological landscape. Um, you know, sometimes too well, but I mean that you know they can be traps. They're all they, everything can be a trap. But to just sort of cleanly br- make that distinction for me, it goes too far. Yeah, let me just build on your idea. I mean, just like and you sort of alluded to it at the end with you know Peterson's take and an evolutionary standpoint. I'm anticipating one you know criticism of what you'd say, and this is kind of the the classic what Sam Harris might say is. Well, sure, that's fine. You know, every religion has mystics, but look at the number of, you know, Sufis in Islam or Christian mystics, and it's tiny. But what someone like Peterson's saying, or what you're saying, I think, is that it's not just about what's happening on the conscious level. You know, it's also about what's happening on the subconscious level. You know, it's about how these interacting with people as archetypes. And the human mind is just way too complicated. So even for people who are ostensibly engaging with these, you know, these symbols more literally, it's doing something to them, you know, archetypal uh, that has, and that is the reason that it has more significance to them. They don't even comprehend it, but it's doing something for them and to them. Yeah, I would say that that's true. And, and uh, you know, and again, I, I'm not sure what to do with that that side of it in the sense that, even if it's obviously producing value for people, that's also precisely where you get into the creepy politics of it, where it rubs up against my core commitment to more, you know, cosmopolitan values, multicultural values. You know, I'm not, I don't fear the other. I don't. So when it becomes that kind of the way in which those belief systems can support let's call them tribal identities. I think it's unfair to actual tribes to say that, but it, it's a it's a term that people use a lot and it, you can see why it works, where that allows people to even further draw distinctions. I would say it's kind of a dialectic that that's part of religion, but it's also part of, of science. You know, it's also part of how people proceed. You know, you have liberals and conservatives, you have people who insist that things are just the way they were and that you stick with that and you don't want anything new. You don't want any new uh, transformations or challenges. And there are parts where it opens up and it becomes a kind of a personal value. It becomes a way of, of organizing the craziness of the human mind or, or going farther. So it's, it's a tough point. I'll give that that's where, in a way, the rubber meets the road. Is it worth it? You know, is it worth it for the positive value that the truly believing religious people get in a way that that's actually helpful for society as a whole? Is it worth it for the way in which that can go violent or can go anti-immigrant or whatever, you know, the way that it can turn in on itself? And I'm not sure about that, what the value is, but I do certainly believe that we, as best we can, have to learn how to live with this rather than seeing it as just a kind of corrupting virus. Right. I agree with you. And, and let's let's sort of build on this point, the issue of tribalism and concede something to the other side, because 
I wouldn't even say it the other side. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly, I agree with some points that Sam makes, and that's a big one of them is part of the problem with religion is the tribalism, the in-group, out-group mentality. And yes, it's not only religion, it's nationalism, it's all these other things. But what makes religion, partic- some in particular, very pernicious is this notion of the doctrine of revelation, the promise of paradise. And so it's sort of tribalism on steroids. And so let's unpack that a little more in terms of the problems with it and and how we get beyond it. But let's do it in a way that sort of adds the addendum, which I strongly agree with that you made. It's like this, this notion that if we somehow just got rid of religion, that then all of a sudden we'd stop being irrational. That's an assumption. And it's an assumption for which I think the evidence is is pretty weak. I mean, in general, you can just look at how irrational people are, you know, in terms of how they make decisions on a number of topics, not relating to religion. I'm thinking of the research of someone like Daniel Kahneman, you know, thinking fast and slow. So how do we extract what's good with religion and kind of account for those cosmopolitan sensibilities that you and I have, but also honor the value there? Wow. I mean, that is a really tough question. You know, it's, you know, there, there's different ways of thinking about it. One, in a way, I want to even defend a little bit of the uh, the crazy millenarianism. You know, so you talk about like one of the things that's most difficult is this revealed claim that if you follow this way, then there's going to be a, a heavenly kingdom on the other side and we have to act in history right now with great urgency in order to affect this. And that kind of passion, that kind of militancy linked to some of these very wacky ideas can, of course, be extremely pernicious, but it can also be a source of of radical revolutionary strength. And indeed, if you want to look at I mean, depending on where your where your politics are, if one has any sympathy with revolutionary movements or or the kinds of uh, disgust with the powers that be that would lead one to support the dice roll of a revolutionary movement, that you will find the origins of that kind of thinking within millenarian movements, within people who have a wacky interpretation of the Book of Revelation and a wacky interpretation of of the Catholic Church. They think the Catholic Church maybe is you know run by by demons or whatever, and there's a small group of them, and then they start talking to peasants who are totally pissed off, and then a couple turns of the wheel, and you have a peasant revolt, and the peasant revolt actually makes changes that have a that mark politics, and beyond even making you know changes, maybe making the lives of those people better over over time. You know, they might get bumped off right away, but over time, people have to start taking it seriously. There's a there's a, an important role that millenarian freaks have played in making the world better. So you know, like even the militancy that I this is in a way the same kind of militancy that I was talking about that you can see in the new atheist to a certain degree, although the ideas are, are obviously totally core, you know, radically different. So there's an energy even there that I don't want to completely dismiss. It's complicated. And beyond even the political effect of that, there's also something incredibly powerful and transformative. You know, we, we talk about transformation on an individual level, that the individual can, you know, in the, at the right event or, or some deep challenge or out in the woods or at a meditation retreat or something like really go through a process, actually leave stuff behind 
glimpse a new way of being, even move into this new way of being that's that's freer, sweeter, more kind, more centered, more flowing with energy, more alive. You know, we, we know what that means. But that can happen to cultures too. And one place that you see that happen, although it's often tragically brief because history is tragic, that one of the places you see that kind of transformative energy open up are in these radical movements, whether they're religious or secular. I mean, there's aspects of communism, of the, the origins of communism that involve these the, the feeling of great numbers of people coming together and realizing they can actually change things. And in that moment of social chaos, which can be violent and can be cruel, and it's that's all true, there's also a kind of glimpse or a kind of space of possibility that opens up that people who've gone through it describe as just absolutely absolutely transformative. So I kind of want to insist on, in a way, like mixing up these categories, because again, that kind of urgency, that kind of impassion, you can find in, in on both sides, and you can find elements of good and evil on both sides. So to support your point about the problems with imagining, you know, that we would all be, you know, in happy land if everyone just stopped being religious, i.e. That, that reason and science and our natural evolutionary biologically driven moral system uh, was sufficient to keep things groovy, in fact, actually made things groovier, you got to deal with the, with the Soviet Union. I mean, you got to deal with that, even if you're not a communist, even if you don't believe in Marx, which is, I mean, I don't know what that means exactly, because he was incredibly clear about a lot of things that are that are going on that very few people were talking about at the time. And he certainly, you know, set in motion a lot of the, the changes that happened in, in the 20th century that I think most of us would be happy about in terms of resisting the 1%. Sadly, it might be a little more in the past than the present. But in any case, once they got rolling and once they got power, that was a fully secular order in which there was a lot of very well-educated intellectual people, including a lot of scientists. There were obviously some goofy scientists as well. They had a lot of really bad science that was chosen more for political reasons. So who believe a truly enlightened rationalist science order can look at them and say, oh yeah, but they weren't really doing it right. Okay, maybe. But the point is, is that the horrors that the the, the Soviet Union un unleashed on its own people you know, let alone the role it played in the world or whatever, you you have to acknowledge that that is on the <laughs> that's on the science side, guys. That is not on the religious side. So you you have this glaring example in 20th century history that these guys never talk about, or if they do, the way they try to get around it, I, I don't really buy because it's just putting way, 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 way too much faith in in the sort of enlightenment, self-interested, morally balanced kind of a subject position that I think is true of, you know, a lot of analytic philosophers and people who do sciences in the university or whatever, but is clearly not the not true for, let's say, your, you know, your average uh, Silicon Valley uh, capitalist uh, disruptor who wants to use science and technology to like undermine <laughs> cultural and social frameworks in order to exploit them to make money. And like, you know, whatever, like that guy's irrational. That guy is 
He's not on the religious side. He's on the we're just meat machine side. He's on the evolutionary biology side, exploiting elements of evolutionary biology in order to make us addicted to our cell phones, in order to make us unable to process ordinary reality. Those guys are driven by evolutionary psychology, which is the only thing that the new atheist can point to as a source of moral behavior. That's it. There's nothing else. It's not culture. It's not mythology. It's not belief. It's our own innate capacity to be moral based on evolution. And when, so the people who are exploiting those things ever and ever finer ways, that's a perfect example of how, what you should expect if we suddenly find ourselves, wake up tomorrow and all the religious people have converted to science. At one point, we'd sort of talked about this idea of the potential response, the rebuttal of what new atheists might say to someone like Jordan Peterson, who's done this whole series on the Bible, which I find very fascinating, is that, well, yeah, the problem with that kind of interpretation is, you know, it's it's ahistorical, that if you look back at the different traditions of Judeo-Christianity, it really wasn't about myth and metaphor. And you had the notion of revelation and faith that were really central. And and yes, you did have people who took it as metaphor. You did have these esoteric schools. And that's what you talked about a bit in your earlier answer. But I'm wondering, you know, kind of what you would say to that in terms of, you know, the esoteric was always sort of the tiny exception to the rule. And that clearly these were meant to be taken as doctrine, as as revelation. Do you think that is a fair critique or do you think there was a genuine debate between the two or something else? Well, I mean, it's definitely a complicated question. I would definitely more than quibble with the idea that it was it was always simply meant to be taken as if revelation is an unambiguous thing, even within the sort of interpretive frameworks of the leading theologians, you're going to find tremendous differences. And that's true even after, you know, the Catholic Church, let's say, as we know it today, crystallizes some of its basic axioms by the third century, let's say, and moves on, you know, even after that point, you're going to find change and transformation within theological ideas. And that happens because there's debate, because there's disagreement, because you, you have liberal wings and conservative wings. So the idea that there's just sort of like one message and then like the whole machine gears up to like get everybody to just accept it as unambiguous revealed truth, I think is just not the case. It's just not the way it happens historically, even if it is also true that, you know, Many people are, you know, believing what they believe in the mode of this is revelation, this is truth, this is not a metaphor, this is not a myth. So I'm not denying that. And I'm not denying the negative functions of that, the negative sides of having an unreflected kind of belief. That said, I think that when someone like Peterson, I don't want to speak for him, partly because he's a pretty supple thinker in my view, at least when he approaches uh, this particular material, and I, I'm not f totally familiar with everything he's done, and I, I haven't listened to the, the Bible lectures, for example, but I think I have a sense of what he's talking about, is that if you want to say that there's some kind of psychological structures that we have, or even psychosocial structures that we have, 
that are spoken to extremely deeply by these stories and that engaging these stories is functional for our lives, that it leads to human flourishing or at least can lead to human flourishing, that that does not mean that everybody who's, who's hearing that story thinks of it merely as a myth or a metaphor, you know, that if you really believe that, if you really hold that these, some of these stories work with our evolutionarily produced psychosocial structures in a positive way, then the, that positivity is still going to exist even if the people who are buying those stories don't think of them as stories. So that's where you get into kind of the, the weird edge is that it, if you could put it simply, and this is not the way Peterson would put it exactly, or, but if we are wired for religion, if we are wired as human beings, socially evolved, purely in terms of evolutionary psychology, no supernatural elements, blah, 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 but we're in some ways our brains are wired for religion, then it's not clear to me exactly where you stand to say, and therefore we should expunge religion. It's not an easy argument because you're like, well, what do we do with all of that, those organizing stories that sort of have done that work for a long time? You go, okay, well, we'll look at the secular world. You know, we've been in the post-Enlightenment age, uh, Europe, and then increasingly the developed levels of developed countries, you know, the more educated levels of developed countries have been living in a secular universe, you know, with supposedly beyond those stories. We're over those stories. Clearly it works. But once you start thinking about how religion works, especially when, when you're thinking about it psychosocially, especially in terms of stories, myths and metaphors, archetypes, et cetera, et cetera, then you're like, well, I'm not really sure what a religion is. Like, I'm, I'm not really sure... Can I say, you know, sports isn't a religion for people, that it doesn't function like a religion, it doesn't look and smell and taste like religion, even if it doesn't have a belief structure, a revelation structure, because in all these other ways, it sort of serves that function. So is that religion or not? And I'm, I'm not always clear, you know, is Star Wars a religion or not? You don't. And that doesn't mean, yes, there are some small handful of of uber fans who think of themselves unironically without any sort of postmodern uh, goofiness that Jediism makes more sense to them than anything else and that they, they use those ideas as part of their lives or as part of their ethical decisions or whatever. You know, that, that's a particular, you know, unusual example of sort of postmodern religion. But even broader than that, you know, when you start looking at Star Wars, how it functions, how people respond to it, how it plays into their lives, how it even plays into their decisions or their maps and models of what a life, what a valuable life is, how to interact with other people, how to imagine the future, et cetera, et cetera, what evil is, then you're going to find these same kinds of structures, you know, the same kinds of things that Peterson will talk about with, you know, Cam, Joseph Campbell slash Jungian ideas. You know, it's hard to say, well, we clearly have lived in a post-religious world. And you're like, well, sort of what you mean by religion. You know, the hardcore atheists, they don't even, they're not even interested in that stuff. They don't, they don't want any of that kind of thing. They think that reason alone provides the way to understand the world. And they make the argument, which I do agree with. I fully agree with the argument that we do not need religious stories in order to produce moral behavior. I think that that's very clear. And so I'm not, that's something that a lot of religious 
critics of atheists will say is like, oh, if you don't have these stories and all you're going to get is, you know, postmodern nihilism and everybody's just going to be doing all these horrible things because we've lost the ground of absolute truth and the moral. And I don't I don't I just don't think that's true. I think it's kind of demonstrably not true. And in that way, I agree with a, a lot of those aspects of, of atheist critiques. But when we come to like living uh, without religion, I don't know. It's like, the you know, uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was a, a Catholic Orthodox, a defender of orthodoxy and a very, very bright guy, you know, 100 years ago, uh, England, you know, he had this great line where he says, you know, the problem with, with people who lose their faith is not that they don't believe anything. It's that they'll believe everything. And so it's like this idea they have of you lose belief, then you're just, you know, with post-belief. But that's not really what happens. What you happens is you have this kind of multiplication of forms of religion, mutant forms of religion. Mut religion mutates like everything else. And indeed, you can find it inside the rhetoric and practices of some skeptics and some new atheists and that's we talked about that before what's kind of funny as a historian of religion you're like oh look that's like a religious formation under a secular name so in my view there's it's very difficult especially as a culture to escape this stuff and so if you try to like burn it out burn out all the traditional forms you know scare them out of their roots and and you know slaughter them in the light of day of, of reason of science you're going to produce monsters and we're already in kind of a monster time anyway whether we want to or not where there, there are all sorts of weirdnesses on the horizon all sorts of new powers all sorts of strange ideas about what the human can and should be and there are people who have the power to enact those in quite considerable force and so you know we're already kind of in that in that stew and so I, I think one of the things that unbalances some of the new atheist critiques is that they put so much emphasis on belief. It's like the idea is that if people actually believe these dumb ideas, like whatever, God created the world in 6,000, I mean, I, you know, stuff that I can't wrap my head around, but it's the belief where the problem lies and it's belief where the solution lies. But that is a very, very narrow way of understanding how religions function in, in individual lives and in social life, in, in societies, that in many ways, belief is just not that important. And in fact, you cannot believe and practice. And a lot of modern people do that. And it doesn't mean that they're practicing with hollowness. Maybe sometimes they do. Sometimes people lose their belief and they go, I can't go to church anymore. But there are other people who keep going to church. And when the people come up to them in church and say, you know, praise God, they go, okay, praise God, or whatever they say. And inside they're like, you know, I don't, I don't really know if I believe in God. But in a way they understand not just the social function, oh, this makes these people's individual lives happier because they have some false belief system, but that, that something in religion has, doesn't really have to do with belief. And that's where you get into these subconscious weird cognitive maps or or memory systems or energetic body systems or altered states, all of these sort of things that really aren't about belief, but they're triggered and shaped and evoked and called like poetry out of our nervous system, out of our psychosocial, sexual nature. 
uh, and they have a tremendous amount of power. And so I think it's not rare for people, even people who aren't intellectuals, or to come to certain kinds of disbelief in the midst of their beliefs. And sometimes that means they, they leave their churches, and sometimes it means they find another way to be religious. And you know, I'm a I'm a kind of let a thousand flowers bloom guy. I, I'm a pluralist. I mean, a profound pluralist. I believe in neurodiversity. I think that everyone is uniquely wired. We respond to drugs differently. We respond to texts differently. We respond to ideas differently. And that the variety of religions that we see today in the in the West, for example, though there's great variety all over the world, but just to take our own example, is a sign not of weakness but uh, uh, precisely the opposite of our capacity to engage these in different ways. And some of those people, again, aren't going to be interested in it at all. Some of them are going to be like, screw this. This is BS. This is dumb. I'm, I'm interested in science. I'm interested in empiricism. I'm interested in mathematics and rationality and in physics. I, I don't think there's, these are stories. They're used to whatever, you know, all the, the typical story. I think that's part of the, the rainbow. I'm not saying that like, oh, everyone should have their own form of religion, and if they don't, they're lost. I don't believe that for a second, for a second. But I just am very hesitant about the idea that somehow by creating a militant campaign where we expunge these forms of belief or these existing forms, we're going to somehow liberate the world. I don't think that's true politically. I don't think that's true culturally. Doesn't mean we can't. We don't have to make hard decisions about something like ISIS. I'm not defending like, oh yeah, let those guys let a thousand flowers bloom. They can just do whatever they want to do because they're motivated by their own idea of God. Obviously, there are difficult decisions. That's politics. We do that in all domains. The same kinds of issues arise with secular societies or with our ideas about the Soviets at a certain point. So it's not just about religion. It's about how do you deal with people who are insisting on a very different way of being. And what I'm describing, is that true for most religious believers? Probably not. I mean, we're in this age of, of where even as everything gets more uncertain, it seems like certainty is something that people are holding on to. So we see all sorts of terrible forms of domination, authoritarian thinking, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all over the place, left and right. So, you know, I'm not, this is no solution here. It's just a kind of position of, of radical pluralism that recognizes, even on a purely sociobiological level, the, like Peterson is arguing for, the functional, psychological, cultural uses, and even affordances, even bonuses <laughs> that come with, with being immersed in currents of religion. Say more about this idea that what you said a, a few minutes back about, you know, you think that if, and, and correct me, I'm sure I'm not going to phrase it right the way you said it, but if we lose these myths, that's where we can get into, there's a danger in terms of producing monsters, right? That this has a, a function to serve. And it's, I, I jumped, I noticed that because actually Peterson talks about that a lot and really noticed specifically about this notion of like, Monster, you know, when he'll talk about whether it's good and evil or villain and hero, it's sort of thinking about it in a way that, you know, the monster or the villain isn't other, right? It's within ourselves. And that's what these stories are about in terms of learning to integrate that or, or work with that. I was wondering, did you mean it in that sense or, uh, or what did you mean by, by that point? 
No, that's a very good question. I would even go farther and say that it, it points to a possible, not contradiction so much, but attention in what I'm portraying. Because one way of looking at that is that religion serves the function, and this is one of the things that religion does with great, and I mean capital R religion, you know, a lot of the way I'm using the term is both capital R religion, like existing, very def well-defined systems of belief and practice where it's very clear, you know, you're a Muslim or you're not a Muslim. And then I'm also using it in a much broader sense that refers to, you know, myths, ideas of spirits, ideas of other dimensions of reality, ideas of karma, you know, things that are more let's call spiritual, but not religious. And I'm using it in a broader sense for this argument, because even the spiritual but not religious stuff, with some exceptions, is going to be harped on by from a lot of atheist sides. But to talk about religion with a capital R, like one of the most distinct things that it does is that it draws a distinction between inside and outside, the believers, the non-believers, the, the faithful, the non-faithful. The non and it's not just religion. You know, traditional societies do this. I mean, we know we can romanticize you know, indigenous cultures, people living close to the land, you know, they haven't developed uh, social hierarchies that are, are incredibly oppressive and da, da, da. There is something very uh, stirring about those kinds of societies, but almost, you know, a lot of them, what they, if you ask them, who are you? They say, we're the people. And they, well, what about the guys next door? They go, oh, those, they're the blah, blah. They're not people. You know, there's this sort of basic sense that humans do of like creating these tribal lines. So it's not just about religion. We do this in all sorts of ways. We do this around sports, dimension sports again. I mean, that's when you look at like how much enjoyment sports fans have in hating the rival team and de defining and distinguishing themselves in the, you know, uh, in the arena. I mean, you really learn something there about this is something that humans do and religion very much supports that. Is that a good thing? Eh, not really. Not in, the, not in the big picture, not in the world we're in now. So in that sense, I think there's a lot to be said for really questioning how religion can function as a way of declaring who's a monster. We on the inside are believers. We're, we're with God. We're true. Those on the outside aren't just wrong, but they might even be monsters. And this is where you get into, I mean, we don't see this as much with religion as you do with, say, racism. You know, we're one of the signs you know that you're getting close to actual racism, like, I mean, not actual, but to like full on racism, is that the distinction that's being made between the good race and the bad race is that the bad race begins to be associated with animals. This is a classic, you know, you can see it in racist speech left and right. And, you know, this is true for enemies in a war. They're animals, they don't deserve, you know, meeting, talking to a very, intelligent, well-mannered, friendly guy who was a friend of a friend in college who was from New York, Jewish, whatever. We talked about a lot of stuff. One time the issue of the Palestinians came up and he like went into this other thing, this like weird, like Zionist intoxication where he was like furious suddenly. Like, he's, you know, he doesn't live there, whatever. Somehow he'd gotten programmed the way that religions can program you, but this was not, I mean, though this is a religious distinction, it's much more about politics than, than religion in a, in a sense. I guess that's arguable, but at least that was my experience. And he was, ah, oh, but you can't, you can't negotiate them. They're animals. They're animals. And you're like, whoa. You know, so when you get to that and the monster is kind of like, 
you know, a worse, it's like a, a perverted animal, you know. So obviously there's something suspicious about a system that allows a very clear way of declaring what is a monster. What I meant about it is something a little bit different. I mean, I actually think we're in a, a, a time of history, a time of transformation where we're encountering monsters all the time and that in some sense we actually have to befriend the monster because if we freak out about the monster and by the monster i don't mean like the alien i mean things that are profoundly peculiar strange weird disturbing uh, potentially malevolent threatening and these things are like our, our world is increasingly populated with these things i mean even the weather that we all suffer through now with that sense that it's dislodged, it's no longer part of the norm, it's become monstrous, or at the very least, it's become weird and has more potential for monstrosity. I think we live in a time of monsters, and I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. It's just where, where we're at, and to be awake and alive as we move forward is to become accustomed to that, which doesn't mean you know giving into it. But what I meant by saying it in, in that particular context was that if you think that by somehow spreading science, controlling education, using the mechanism of the state to undermine churches, I mean, if you really go after religion, if you were really able to like deconstruct it as an institution, as a form of thinking, as a form of organizing emotion, in the world right now, as it is currently constructed, you're going to regret it. And so uh, the idea that somehow if we get these ideas out of the way, there's going to be some flowering of a more reasonable world, it just does not strike, that just does not seem anthropologically accurate to me. Right. You know, there's this particular view of history in the new atheist view. It's sort of like, it goes something a little along the lines of this. It's like, well, before the Enlightenment, Right. Western civilization was it was dominated by religion, you know, especially with the rise of Christianity. And it was very irrational and people were more superstitious. And then you add the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and people started to become more rational. They cast off the superstitions and everything's been kind of on an upward trajectory since then. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but that's pretty much, I think, their point of view. And. No question religion is a big source of conflict, but, you know, it really is about ideological conflict generally, right? It's not only religion. How about capitalism, communism or nationalism, all these other ideologies? And to talk about animals, I mean, one point that Peterson is big on is sort of thinking about the implications of evolutionary thinking, you know, and sort of really observing chimps and how they behave and what that can tell us about our own behavior, not only individually, but socially and sociologically. And so if you look at chimps, you know, they're extremely territorial. They're very violent. And so for chimps, that's very much about physical space. But I think because of the size of our brains and the nature of our intelligence, it's not only when you invade our, our physical territory, it's our intellectual territory as well right, that we begin to perceive that threat. And we, we fight back with that. I mean, people fight. People are clearly very ready to, to die for beliefs. If there's one thing human history, you know, shows, it's certainly that. And so, well, I, I definitely agree with you. It's, and I don't want to sort of recapitulate the new atheist worldview by saying it's, it's all about belief. You know, there's something 
that conflict, that territory is very, it's deeply embedded in us. You know, it's, it's prior to humans even being around in terms of our DNA. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's obviously, that's, I guess that's another way of saying is that, is that I totally recognize the problem that's being associated with religion, but I don't think the problem really goes away if you get religion out of the picture. You get, then you get nationalism, then you get some other ideological formation, whatever the thing is, and it might be better, you know, maybe, I don't know, but it might be worse, uh, you know, because those moral, those moral norms that are sustained by religious ideas do have some force. They have some kind of inertial organization of what decisions people make, even if just as a meme complex or something like that. And so then we're really talking about what do we do about that? And, you know, I don't know. You know, I wish I did. I mean, I've always been, uh, you know, very open-minded. I, I like the other. I, I'm interested in what challenges me. I, when I see a space for otherness, I kind of go, all right, like, let's see what this way. Is this going to work? Is there going to be some connection here? You know, so like as a Californian, the idea that I would be afraid or challenged as some Californians are, I mean, you know, it's a pretty liberal place, but that said, you know, there's a lot of people here who are, you know, freaked out that it's a, you know, Latin majority. It's like, whoa, oh my God, you know, and I'm like, eh, you know, we took, you know, we took it from in, in the middle of the 19th century. Like, I don't know what, it, what does it mean to own a, you know, whatever, like I'm ready. <laughs> I mean, I might, whatever, it might be a pain in the ass in some ways, but like, I don't feel like I have that investment in dominating the sort of sense of how things should be, but that's just me. I don't know how, how it made me. Maybe it's just because I had an easy time of it in some ways and that people don't have an easy time, but they have more reasons or they're more, it's more tempting to become tribal and hateful and project all of the evil onto the other. And it's clearly also manipulated. It's clearly a part, you know, an aspect of propaganda, an aspect of you know, whatever, mind manipulation that you can trigger when people are afraid, when they feel like they're losing ground, you can trigger these tribal programs and they're going to kick in. And I don't know what to do about that. You know, I mean, I would love to imagine that it would be possible to kind of reattach that sort of sense of tribal identity, which has a beauty to it. It has a, a kind of you know, earnestness, a kind of juiciness, a kind of sense of memory or whatever it is that there's a sort of poem there. But to have that be attached to, you know, life as an within an environment or, or the fact that we are embodied beings inside of a, of a physical environment that itself is threatened. Like what, what does it mean when we feel that affront to our personal identity, uh, not because somebody says, something about, you know, whatever our ancestors or the, the religious book we read, but because of what they're doing to our land or our water supply or our air. I mean, what does that require? And that's where, I, you know, I'm ultimately that kind of, look, we either, we either wake up as, you know, global earthlings, uh, you know, part of this planetary system, or it doesn't matter whether we're fighting about religion or fighting about post-humanism or fighting about, you know, cyborgs or, or whatever, it's, it's, it's going to be a pretty rough scene. So I'd like to imagine that somehow we can do that, but I don't know, you know, maybe it's, we're in one of this, sometimes I, I fear that we're in a, a kind of bind where 
maybe the only thing that could make human beings capable of dealing with the complexities of the future is a kind of radical engineering process that in itself is morally repugnant and likely to fail. And that's a very kind of pessimistic way to think about it. But sometimes it looks like that to me, like, wow, we still not get it, really not getting it. Boy, we had a lot of chances to at least sort of start to kind of get it. But if that's the case, what else can you do but to continue to work for that kind of change, work for that kind of framework and, and hope that things sh can shift quickly with generations? And maybe partly of that does involve moving away from traditional religion. But I think it's more likely that it takes the form of finding new kinds of religiosity, new modes of religiosity, new ways of working creatively, playfully, and sometimes with super commitment with forms of that play off of the way in which we are in some ways wired for this stuff. I don't think it's going to take the form of us all just getting like really excited about the blockchain and how we can, you know, reprogram our, you know, emotional circuits to produce all happiness all the time or you know some of these kind of fantasy sci-fi elements that emerge within these rationalist streams of people who are thinking about the future. I mean, they seem as ridiculous to me often as, you know, religious ideas of the end of the world or, you know, some kind of come to Jesus moment. Can you, yeah, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I know you, you alluded to that a little bit before our first conversation in terms of some of the limitations of kind of the consciousness hacking. And I don't mean specifically well, you, the organization, but just kind of. No, no, I don't. I, I have respect for the meme. I mean, and I, I think it's actually really important. I think that that's part of what a certain aspect of religion has been doing is how to create protocols and practices that allow us to experience altered states, different dimensions of existence, different aspects of the self, and then allowing those experiences to in turn change who we are, both individually and as a culture. There's a German philosopher, Peter Sloterdijk, and he thinks that religions are kind of mis... We, we think about religion in a wrong way. That are really systems of practices that allow people to change themselves over time and that we misrecognize them as belief systems. And I, I'm very resonant with his way of thinking about it. And so then you get into a realm of like, well, there's better and worse things to do. And in a way, consciousness hacking kind of frees that process from kind of the ideological control or the moralism of uh, traditional religions. And it says, yeah, let's like hack ourselves and see where it goes. My issue, and this is the only one I think I want to mention now, although there's other things I could say, but the one I, I would want to kind of end with is the problem with that mode almost across the board, I, with a few exceptions that I've seen, is that it never really tries to undermine the manipulator or the hacker. So consciousness is a system. We can hack it. We can hack it to make ourselves better. We can hack it to make ourselves happier. We can hack it to make people get along better. And you start to see a kind of utopian engineering. We can hack it to create uh, you know, systems of friendship instead of this. We can hack it to open up our 
sexual lives to accept non-monogamy because jealousy is a bad program. We can hack it to, you know, on and on and on. I'm not saying all these people believe all these things. I'm just saying that model of the hacker. But the one thing is like, well, who is the hacker? Who is the hacker? And at what point is the hacker undermined? And that's a big question because it gets to this fundamental question about agency, about responsibility, about, you know, who we are, et cetera, et cetera. Identity, you know, it's a big question. But one way of looking at the practices that are embedded in all religions, not just Buddhism or Hinduism, but also Christianity, even if we don't see it as much, unfortunately, is one of ways of looking at those practices that are embedded there is that they are ways to come to terms with this fundamental conundrum that even though we can do all these things, or at least try to do all these things, try to hack this, try to make it better, try to da da da, da all that, that even as we see that, you know, change happens, we try to do things, in a way, there's not an agent, or at least it's not like we think it is at all. And religions have different way of framing that, you know, obviously in Buddhism, there's ultimately no agent at all, or in Hinduism, the agent is God but like an abstract God that doesn't take the form of a human being particularly. But even within theistic faiths, the relationship to God's will as opposed to my will is really profound because at the level of practice, not the level of belief necessarily, but at the level of practice, living uh, in terms of God's will and not my will, and I, this is not the way I think, but from studying this stuff, is also a powerful way of engaging this question of who is the hacker and what if the hacker is full of shit? And the problem that I have with so much of that kind of um, rationalist, technology-inspired hackery in the fields of consciousness and spirituality, but elsewhere as well, is that I always get the sense that at the end of the day, it's still the same self who's in control this entrepreneurial self, this self who wants to be better, the self who wants to live forever, the self who wants all of its desires fulfilled, or the self that wants to be noble, the self that wants to be holy, the self that wants, you know, and all that. And I'm like, look, there's got to be some way to work with this guy. We got to get, oh, we got to leapfrog beyond that in some way and still do and still be supporting each other in the midst of our confusion on some level about who we are. And so the lack of that reflectivity, that reflection, that questioning, that self-inquiry, that self-undermining the self-inquiry involves, the lack of that in my, you know, admittedly kind of whatever, you know, my own peculiar perspective, but my own uh, impression is, is the sort of Achilles heel of a lot of that stuff. Fascinating. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I appreciate your take on that. And, and that's a great point on, on which to end. So I want to thank you so much for your time again, Eric. This was a lot of fun, and we'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, no, it was great, man. I really like your approach, sharp, balanced, you know, and uh, so I thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to say a few things I hadn't said before in my own head. So, you know, I'm always curious what's going to come out. So I uh, uh, appreciate it very much. Hey, thanks. That's why I do this too. Totally. It's therapeutic to get it out of your own head. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Eric. We'll talk again soon. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. 
That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.